All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, for coming out. And I think some of the guys are still coming in from outside having plowed, but uh, I just want to say it again. You guys who, who showed up early and, and took a shovel um, or, a, or a snowblower to this 12 inches of, don't worry, it'll melt before it hits the ground. <laughs> Anybody else hear that? Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to blame anybody for looking past me out this window today. Oh, my gosh. That is, could it possibly be a more beautiful place to come together and worship our Lord? I mean, we have, what a blessing this is. Um, yeah, Todd, I don't know if I meant that exactly. <laughs> if it's for Gabe, okay. Well, I'll just, I'll just come back later. <laughs> Oh, okay. Hey, welcome, you guys, you hearty individuals who came out here today. You out there online, we love you. I know that the roads were a little sketchy this morning, so if you're catching us online, that's why we do this, to make sure that everybody can be safe and come at whatever their comfort level is. Uh, our friends in Tanzania, guarantee your view out the window doesn't look like this right now. Um, probably slightly warmer there. Um, but we're all worshiping Jesus here today, and, and I, for one, am just so thankful that we can come together and do this. Let's get going on the message. Um, I've, got, I've got a lot to cover, so those of you who love to take notes, you're ready to go. Yeah, I, I always look, I always have to try and find Kayla, make sure she's paying attention when I say something, because I know she's going to write it down. Uh, we're in this series called Battle for the Blessing, which, which I... I am loving this series more than I thought that I might. I thought there was an awful lot of really good um, theological points to talk about, a lot of good lessons to take away, but I'm just loving personally what I am getting from it, and I hope you guys to some level feel the same way. Um, it's so obvious to me that a lot of people struggle with the idea of if you're in God's blessing and you're in God's will, things ought to be easier than they are. If we look around, you don't have to look very hard to find somebody that's just struggling, whether it's struggling financially or spiritually or with their health. You're just struggling, and, and at some point, the devil comes knocking on you, uh, on your door, poking you in the shoulder and just saying, hey, you're in this situation because you messed up, or you're in this situation because God doesn't really love you. All the lies start coming your way, and at some point, we just get beat down, and we get tired, and we start going... Maybe there's some truth to that. It happens to all of us. And so going back and looking at these things where we see that Ezra and Nehemiah were so in God's will, so in God's blessing. They were doing what they were called to do by God, but they had to fight for it every step of the way. Nothing was just handed to them. Now, I know we look at their freedom and, and that they were funded to go, all these supernatural things that came, but they still had to fight to hold on to that. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Just to recap last week, if you weren't here last week, we saw, we finished chapter one of Ezra and we saw that what I took away was just a sovereign God knows how to protect those things that he calls holy. The things that are important to him, the things that matter to him, the things that are necessary for him to accomplish his promises to us, he knows how to protect them. And there's nothing that's going to take that away. Now, sure, we look at places like, um, like the temple and the wall and, and holy sites that we see. 
And yeah, he knows, he knows how to protect those things. But more importantly than that, I hope we take away from this that God knows how to protect his people. Because he calls you holy. In 1 Peter it says that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people for God's own possession. He calls you holy. And he knows how to protect what he calls holy. That doesn't mean it's always going to look like we might want it to look. But God's good. And so we see last week that God allowed the tribes of Israel to be held accountable for their choices, for their sins. But even in the midst of that reaping the benefits of, of what they did and didn't do, um, God still promised restoration. He still said, I will restore you. Hundreds of years of prophecy saying, this is going to happen, but I will restore you. If we could take comfort from that today, knowing that even, even if we stray and even if our leadership leads us down a path that we're like, how did we get here? God knows how to protect those things he calls holy. He knows how to restore us. Does not mean that we won't have to suffer some consequences of the things that we have chosen to do and chosen to allow. But we see last week this promise that the temple would be rebuilt and Israel would live on. So since this book centers on the rebuilding of the temple, I think it would be good to maybe up front, we just, we just go ahead and take our hyperlink journey now and we just jump off and we look at some of the backstory about the temple itself. <clears throat> if we're going to really truly fully grasp how important and how holy the temple is as a centerpiece to Israeli and, and Jewish culture, we need to think about the backstory. So we're going to take just, just a short little jump and we're going to do that. First of all, the, the temple that we're talking about being rebuilt was originally called the first, it was called the Temple of, of Solomon, okay, because Solomon's the one that, that had it built. It's also known as the first temple. If you've ever heard people talking about biblical things, they go, this is the first temple period, the second temple period. It all sounds super, uh, super smart and like, I'll never figure out this stuff. The first temple period are things that happened while Solomon's temple existed, while it was there. And then the second one is the one that they're going back to rebuild. That will be the second. So the first temple, Solomon's temple, was built around 950 BC, give or take. Okay, all these dates are, are um, a little bit difficult in the translation and historical records. So it's all give or take. Okay. But it was destroyed. So built in 950 BC, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded in about 586 BC, give or take. So for about 365 years, the Temple of Solomon was the crown jewel, the centerpiece of all Judaism. Everything pointed to the temple as, as, their, as their shining glory, their monument to God. And it was also the home of the Ark of the Covenant. If you ever heard of the Ark of the Covenant. The temple, Solomon's temple, was built of bronze and gold and silver and jewels and the finest cedars that you could get from Lebanon. You ever hear in Scripture, the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon was well known for, for its amazing uh, uh, cedar orchards. And they would, they would uh, cultivate them to get the, the finest building materials 
for all these things. And so if it was built of the cedars of Lebanon, you knew it was expensive and it was good and it was meant to last. Read 1 Kings 6 and 7 if you want to hear more about um, the building of the temple and how that all came together. Here's an image of it, though. This is actually a model that was in, uh, in a museum. I know it's not super huge, might be hard to see, but it's clad in, in gold and bronze, and it is, it is an absolute centerpiece. Inside is even more. There's gold and there's jewels and everything inside. It is something that was a sight to behold. It was, if it was around today, it'd absolutely be one of the wonders of the world. It was incredible. So if we go back a little further, the Jewish people, led by Moses at first during the Exodus, remember, and then right at the doorstep of the promised land, right at the doorstep of Canaan, Moses finds out he's not allowed to go in and Joshua takes him in. So we see that. That happened around 1400 B.C., give or take, okay? 1400 B.C., and if you're doing the math, I, I was thinking it was easy math, but it's not easy math. But if you're following the train, now, John, you're probably following the train totally. You're good at that. But you might ask, why, once the Jews returned to the promised land, once they arrived at the land that they were promised, it was still 450 years before they got around to building a temple. They were still using the tabernacle that they used, the, remember I called it the mobile home, forgot, right? Through the desert, this portable tabernacle, they were still using that. And if you want to know why, it's, it's a little complicated, but I'll try and make it as clear as I can. So King David, we'll go back to King David. King David was ruler of the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah, okay? Um, they weren't united for very long. Soon they would break up into, into two different again. But at this time, they were united. And the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant moved around. It was kind of like a traveling exhibition, so to speak, like we'd see today. You would see it in one city for a while, and then it would pack up and move. It'd be in another city for 450 years. It moved around, and it was all kinds of different cities and places. This is the single most holy artifact in all of Judaism, the Ark of the Covenant. And they're just packing it up and moving it on to another city. 450 years, it worked. Here's what the tabernacle looked like. This is the traveling one that they brought. I mean, it's not the original. You see a little power box? They didn't have a power box there. But it's a recreation of what it looked like. And so inside there would be the Ark of the Covenant. And again, they would just pack it up every once in a while and move it to another city. And that's what they did. If you've never seen the Ark of the Covenant, here's a picture of what that looks like. The Ark of the Covenant. Who immediately thought, I know that from Indiana Jones. Right? That's what it looked like. It's a whole other story in itself. It's an incredible artifact. Contained, literally, the, the, the covenant contained, what they say, is the actual tablets with the Ten Commandments on it that Moses brought down from Sinai. So, very, very important thing. But here's what happened. They constantly had invading tribes and nomads coming in and attacking these towns, especially these outlying towns away from the fortified city of Jerusalem. And at some point, David goes, look, 
It's too dangerous to have it out there and moving around where it can be attacked or something can happen to it. Let's move it permanently into Jerusalem. Okay, so he does that. Read 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 if you want the backstory of that. I won't go down that road here today. But in the meantime, as king, as, as God's chosen, the anointed king of, of the United Kingdoms of Israel, David decides he's going to build for himself a palace. Makes sense, right? You wouldn't want the king of, of Israel, God's anointed, you know, living in a tent. So he builds a house. But it wasn't long after he built this palace that he starts feeling a little, a little guilty. That like, look, I'm living in this house while the Ark of the Covenant is traveling around in, in this tent. First Chronicles 17.1 and it came about when David lived in his house that David said to Nathan, the prophet, his good friend Nathan, said, look, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. And his good friend Nathan says, you know what? You're right. That's a, that's a good idea. It doesn't seem right. We should do that. But then, 1 Chronicles 17, 3 to 5, this is what happens when Nathan goes to bed that night. But it happened that same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my servant, this is what the Lord says. You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. For the house I have dwelt in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. Nathan goes on. And recount, he's recounting this pro prophetic vision that he has to his good friend David. First Chronicles 17, 7 to 10. Now, therefore, this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people in Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have eliminated all of your enemies from you. And I will make for you a name I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones who are here on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them there so that they may live in their own place and not tremble with anxiety again. And the wicked will not make them waste away anymore as they did previously, even from the day that I commanded judges to, to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Okay, that sounds encouraging to this part. But then he goes on, chapter 17, the second half of verse 10 and 11. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, then I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be from your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, think about Nathan, his very good friend Nathan, comes and tells him, David, that seemed like a great idea, but the Lord came to me and said, you're not to do it. He's traveled around in, in, a, in a tent from place to place until now, and at some point he'll have a home, but you're not the one who's going to do it. Now, what would you do if you were David? Assuming you trusted your good friend Nathan that he got that from the Lord, and we know that David did very much trust in what Nathan said, wouldn't your first thing to be, you'd be either disappointed or angry. God, 
I'm your chosen one. I'm king. Why can't I do what's on my heart to build you a house? Or I'd be disappointed. I wanted so much to do that. But instead of being hurt or angry, anybody know what David does? He rejoices. He gives thanks. He is so happy. And why? If that were you, why would you be happy hearing that? Put yourself in David's shoes. What he heard from that is, okay, you're not going to build the house of the Lord. You're not going to be the one to do that. But it will be built, and it's going to be by one of your sons. Your line is going to continue is what he's hearing. So I might not be the one to build it. My son's going to. My offspring, my lineage is going to. And better than that, my lineage is going to continue that was so important to them. In that time specifically, and, and even to this day in Jewish culture, your lineage, your ancestry is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. So he takes comfort and restoration, the promise, in the middle of a rebuke, in the middle of being rebuked by God, saying, you're not going to be the one to do this. In the same breath, he gives him comfort. Your line will continue, and don't worry. My house will be built. But you think about it, wasn't, wasn't David God's favorite? See all kinds of scripture, like David was chosen. He was, he was a man of, of God's own heart. And wasn't he the head of the kingly ancestry of, of Jesus? Seems like, it seems odd that God would shut David down here when that was such on David's heart. He had the means to do it. He had the heart to do it. And he, as king, would have been the rightful one to do it. Why do you think God shut him down and said, no, not you, not now? We find that answer in Scripture. 1 Chronicles 22, 7 and 8. David says this to his son Solomon, who did go on to build the temple. My son, I had intended to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you've shed so much blood and have waged great wars and shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Not to mention murder and adultery, which is a whole other story. God wants the temple to be a place of peace and a place of reconciliation. And even though David was within God's will when he did the things that he did, most of them, some of them, God still said there's someone better to be the one to build this holiest place. And that's going to be your son Solomon. So Solomon builds the temple. And for 400 years, it is the centerpiece. It is the crown jewel. It is the holiest place in all, uh, all of Israel. Until this guy named Nebuchadnezzar comes along, decides he's going to invade and he's going to sack and burn and plunder the temple. Second Chronicles 36.7, Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon, and he put them in his temple in Babylon. So you would think if this were a book, that'd be the end of the story. Okay, they build this great temple, it's all there, but then this warring king comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, and he raises the whole city, takes everybody in captivity, entirely destroys the temple, and he carts off all the plunder. The end, you would think. 
that's not how God works. This was God's design, careful design, for not only teaching, rebuking, and yes, punishing the Israelites for allowing the things to happen there that they did, but also for safekeeping. The most powerful man on earth at that time was Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to take all of these jewels, all the things that are in the temple, the holy things that are in the temple, and I'm going to let him plunder them and take them back to Babylon where he will put them in a vault and they'll be safely kept until the time is right. That's how God works. So that gives us background on the temple. Okay, so we've got a little background on the temple. Now let's look back, let's jump back forward into Ezra, right? We read this part last week, Ezra 1.5. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites rose up. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Remember, those were the heads of the households, the ones that had, that had authority over their particular households from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites. And we had this listing of all the items that were returned. Remember that? All the things, just an inventory of all the things that went back. And what that told us was that that was a celebration. All the things that had happened all that time ago led to this moment where they were in safekeeping the people and the items for return and restoration. That's how God works. All right, so that's the longest prologue ever <laughs> to get into our scripture for today. Now, is it considered a lie if you change your mind? I said at the beginning of this, don't worry, we're going to skip chapter 2. Because it's just a listing of all the stuff. It's boring and dry. God changed my mind. And I hope to change your mind too. We're going to be in Ezra 2. We're going to cover all of Ezra 2 today. Don't worry, we're not going word by word, verse by verse. Name by name. Although, if you want to look for names, to like if you're having a child or a friend's having a baby and you're looking for like name suggestions... Go to Ezra chapter 2. Man, you'll come up with some sweet names for kids. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us this. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And if we believe that that's true, I believe that that's true. We need to look at every verse, every chapter, every book, and mine it for the gold that's in there. That's what we're going to do here today. We're going to find the treasure that's in this. And there's a lot, trust me. So this, when we get into chapter 2, again, verses 1 and 2, this is a recounting of the first wave of exiles that have been released by Cyrus to go back to Babylon. So Ezra 2, 1 and 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Babylon exiled to Babylon, and they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banna. This is the number of men of the people of Israel. Point out something really quick. Zerubbabel, 
He's the Zerubbabel we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. But if you see, if you see some names you recognize, like Mordecai, Nehemiah, those aren't actually the Mordecai and Nehemiah that we think of. They're not the Mordecai from, from Esther or the Nehemiah from the next chapter we're going to, or the next book we're going to talk about. Common names, different, different guys. I just say that so that you don't get confused. But Zerubbabel is there. These were considered the leadership, the heads of households, the men of influence. And it recounts specifically, these are the guys that came. And it goes on to list the number of men from the various tribes, really delineating out these many from these tribes. You can read it if you like, but stay with me for a couple minutes here. We're going to jump ahead to Ezra 2, 36 through 39. <coughs> it talks about the priests who returned. It's going to go on and delineate each individual group. So Ezra 2, 36 to 39, the priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Imer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017. Then it goes on, the Levites who returned, Ezra 240. The Levites, the son of Jeshua and Kadamel, the son of Hodava, Hodava, 74. The singers, you heard Tom talk about the singers early. Ezra 2.41, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. Anybody ever read Psalms and, and go, who's, who's this Asaph guy? Sons of Asaph. The sons of the gatekeepers. Ezra 2.42, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ator, the sons of Talman, the sons of Echob, the sons of Hatya, the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. I'm going to ask you not to go and verify my pronunciation of all these names. I'm just going to confidently declare what they are, and we're just going to go with it. If you find out later that I'm wrong, feel free to keep it to yourself. <laughs> the temple servants. Read Ezra 2, 43 to 54. It gives a list of all the temple servants. The sons of Solomon's servants. Ezra 2, 55 and 58, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasaphareth, the sons of Peruda, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants, total 392. Ezra 2, 64, the whole assembly together totaled 42,360. Now, if you're doing the math, you know that that doesn't add up to 42,360. What they're not including, they're not including personal servants or slaves, they're not including professional singers who were hired to come along, not, not temple worship singers, but professional singers who would sing in the squares and things, assorted livestock and children under 12 years of, old, uh, of age. They were not listed separately. So altogether, it goes up into that 42,000 number. And that number's debated back and forth a little bit. Nothing to worry about, though. This caravan now arrives in Jerusalem of all these people to find... What do they find? Do they go back to Jerusalem and do they find a city that's intact, that's just a ghost town and all we need to do is just move in? No, they find a city that has been leveled. It's been raised. There's hardly anything left. There's no, there's no infrastructure. There's no stores. There's no anything. Ezra 2, 68-69. This is what happens when they arrive and view this scene of devastation. Some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, so they've, they've come and they've gone straight to the temple, and they stand there and they see what's left. 
of Solomon's temple, and there's not much left. They offered willingly for the house of God to erect it on its site. Offered willingly. According to their ability, verse 69, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 silver minas, and 100 priestly garments. Now, we already know that they took up a strongly suggested offering when they were back in Babylon before they left, right? They were supplied by the people. Everybody gave to them items to take to rebuild. But it's interesting that once they arrived, this group of, of the heads of fathers' households, these influential men, they took a look at this, and they had such mourning in their heart for what they were looking at. Most of them had never seen it before in their lives, but they're looking at it, and they're realizing what it is, and they're saying, I need to give more than what was just given to me to pass through. These men had some status back in Babylon. They had, they had money. Some of, them had very, were, some of them were actually very wealthy, and they were so moved at seeing the ruins that they gave more from what they had set aside to live on. Remember, they, were sent, they weren't sent with a whole bunch, some livestock and things, but not a whole bunch to live on. It was mostly just to rebuild the city. They took what was set aside to live on and gave it to rebuild the temple. As leaders, they set the example. And this act of the leaders of the households was meant to show their commitment to restoring the temple. This is how committed we are. This isn't just something we're doing just for fun. We are 100% committed to the restoration of this, of this temple. And with it, goes along with it, the restoration of the status of Israel as a people of God. 200 years later, seems a long time ago to us, but to them it was 200 years later, this Greek legend, General Alexander the Great, maybe you've heard of him, he would invade Persia. He comes across uh, from Greece and he, and he invades Persia and actually defeats them. But when he arrives at the shores, he tells his men to burn the ships. Have you ever heard that saying? Sail one way and burn the ships or things like that. Sometimes it's attributed later to Cortez. Alexander the Great was the first one to do that. And here's what he said. He goes, we will either return home in Persian ships or we will die here. That's commitment. That is commitment to what you're doing. And these men are doing the same thing. We're not holding aside a just-in-case fund. Like, what if we have to go back? We want to make sure that we can fund our trip back. What if this doesn't work? We want to make sure we can set ourselves and our families up here. They're saying no. There is no plan B for Israel. We are all in for God's restoration. That's exactly what we see happening here. They are all into this. So the next verse we see, actually the last verse in Ezra chapter 2, Ezra 270 the caravan disperses now that they've all witnessed what the city looks like. They disperse and they head to their individual cities, their ancestral cities. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities, and all of Israel in their cities. Later on, when we get to Nehemiah, we'll see Nehemiah calling these people back from how they've kind of dispersed and saying, look, we, we need you here so that we can all protect the city. But so at the end of the chapter, where, where Ezra chapter 2 ends, we see the restored nation. 
We see them back where they belong. It's orderly, it's structured, and they are building the temple and they are ready to begin what their calling is. Their main purpose of going back was the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's why they went back. And they are fully committed. So that's it. That is your condensed reading of chapter 2. It wasn't as painful as you might have thought, right? So why is it so important to list out everybody that returned? Why is it so... I mean, the Bible's not a huge document. It might seem like a big book, but it's not a... Uh, an encycl- Remember those old encyclopedias you get, like you got 40 books and you subscribe and you get one a month or whatever? Anybody use those at all anymore? They're super cool to have. <coughs> Someday when all of our cell phones quit and our computers go out, we'll come to your house so that we can find out what happened. But there's so much to find in here. When we look at it closely, here's the point of this entire chapter. Here's what I take away as the point and what, and what I think you, you will too. The listing of all the returning exiles is done for very important and very intentional reasons. It's not just here's random people that showed up. Number one, it shows that this is a verified group of the children and grandchildren who were the ones being held responsible for the destruction of the temple to begin with. God never held Nebuchadnezzar responsible for the destruction of the temple. He held the people who were in charge of keeping it holy and who had let it become defiled. That's who he held responsible. And so this is the children and grandchildren of the ones who were responsible ultimately for the destruction of the temple. The second thing is that these ancestors were responsible their ancestors were responsible for the safekeeping, and now their children and grandchildren would be the ones to rebuild it. It was a new opportunity for them to live up to their calling. It also is there to document the return of David's lineage to Jerusalem and to, and to a position there in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel... Once he got there, he was the appointed governor. That was his official term or uh, position that the, the, the Persian government gave him. But really, he could trace his lineage all the way back to David and Solomon and even, and even to Abraham continuously. He was in the direct lineage, a direct descendant and heir to the throne. He could connect the dots exactly. And what that does, that keeps the Davidic covenant that God gave to David 100% intact. Your offspring will rule over Jerusalem, over Israel. So that's why I think that list was all there. And that gives us some really cool, really interesting takeaways, I think. Here's, so here's our takeaways. Our takeaways. First one, God is faithful. You take nothing away. God is faithful. He's faithful to keep his covenant with his chosen people. Now I need to point something out here. You are God's chosen people. There are people that say, no, it's, if you get into substitutionary atonements and different theological debates, replacement theology, all these things, we're not debating any of that. What I need you to know is that you are God's chosen people. 
God knows how to keep those things that he calls sacred and holy and chosen. He knows how to keep them safe. Let me share a couple scriptures. Exodus 12, 47 through 49. This is going way back, but it illustrates how you're God's chosen people. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. They're talking about Passover, right? They're instituting Passover as a celebration of the freedom that God has given them. But if a stranger resides with you, someone outside the nation of Israel, someone who's not a Jew, resides with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, okay, meaning he celebrates what God has done with you. All of his males are to be circumcised, okay? Thankfully, we don't have to do that anymore. And then he shall come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who resides among you. Saying anyone who celebrates what God has done here is welcome to partake in the Passover celebration, is welcome to be one of you. And then Paul puts a finer point on it later in Romans, Romans eleven sixteen to 18. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Ever heard that? And if the root is holy, the branches are as well. But if some of the branches were broken off, he's talking about the vine, the vine being the nation of Israel, and we are the branches grafted in. Some of you have heard it put like that before. But this is where it comes from. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So we are grafted into the root of the covenants and the promises that God made to Israel. And we are grafted into that. We're no better. We're just different. And we're, root, we're grafted right into there. We are the wild olive tree. Here's what we know now. In addition, God is faithful, but God is faithful This is going to be unpopular. God is faithful to discipline his chosen people. If you are God's chosen people, which I hope you understand, because there's dozens more, hundreds more scriptures that prove that you are God's chosen people, God is also faithful to discipline you when necessary. That's not a fun thing to hear, but that proves God's faithfulness. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 11, also Hebrews 12, says, For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why we are disciplined. What father does not discipline his own child with the hopes that my child is going to grow up to to be able to function in society, to be able to understand the blessings that he has? That's what a father's discipline does, and our good father God is no different. He can't overlook our sins. He has to discipline our sins. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. God does not discipline us to make us pay for our sins. Jesus did that. Jesus paid for our sins. He does it, the second half of verse 10 in Hebrews 12, 
He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. That's how. By allowing our God, by understanding that when we need to be disciplined, he will do that with the idea that we will share in his holiness. We will become something more like who we are called to be. The next thing I know, he is faithful to restore his chosen people. If you want applicable scripture for that, read all of Ezra. Read all of Nehemiah. That's what we're looking at. Go back and read Job. It's all about restoration. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10 says it like this, though. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise. That's a promise that we can take away. I read it put this way in a commentary who, who kind of paraphrased this idea. And I just want to read it because it really struck me well. When God forgives our sin and restores us spiritually, he does not usually remove the consequence of what we did to incur his discipline. If you destroyed your family through your sinful anger, you may not get your family back when God restores you to a right relationship with him. If you ran up huge debts because of your impulsive spending, repentance doesn't mean that God will make all of your creditors evaporate. So here's your application. Your application for this scripture today is this. If you want to reap the benefits of being considered among God's chosen, you need to understand a few things. The first one is that we have a part to play in this restoration. We have a part to play to live up to our calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. The next thing, we should understand and expect God's discipline when we stray from our calling. And the last thing, we can praise him in the middle of all of the storms of life because we know the restoration is coming. Restoration is coming. And thankfully, it's not dependent on us getting everything right. It's dependent on God's grace. He knows how to protect what he calls holy. And he calls you holy. And if we understand this, we can look forward to the ultimate restoration, which I see coming down in two scriptures here. 1 Corinthians, it's the last two of the day. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 to 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the grace of the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay, we've heard that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, That is the ultimate restoration that we have to look forward to. No matter the trials that we go through today, no matter our mistakes, no matter the corrections that we go through, if we submit to God and we understand that we are chosen and we do the best we can on this earth to live up to our calling as chosen people of God, he knows how to restore and protect those that he calls holy. And that's you.
Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful and humbled that you gave your son Jesus for us. That with all of our flaws, all of our mistakes, time and time again doing the same thing, making the same mistakes, you still call us friend. You still call us your children. You still call us holy. And you gave your son Jesus to reconcile us to you, to pay the price for those sins. And so, Father, I pray right now that I would have the realization of the corrections that I'm going through, the paying the price for the consequences of the choices I have made is not because you don't love me. It's because you love me. Thinking of going down a rough road, a rough patch in our life, thinking that I'm going through that because you love me is hard. But I pray that to all of us who are going through those places right now, suffering from those things right now, that you would just show us. Every time we hit a hardship, every time we hit some sort of course correction, that you show us that you are behind it and it is your love. And that's how we can rejoice in all circumstances. Father, we give it all to you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. And I thank you for who you say I am. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take communion together right now. Um, I completely forgot to find a second couple. Do we have a couple who's just willing to serve communion? Throw your hands up if you're willing to serve communion. How about Colleen and Carrie? I see you looking at each other. (laughs) Colleen and Carrie will be serving communion over here. Gabe and I will be over here. Um, You just come down the center aisles. Take as much time as you need to while the worship team goes on. Let the words that they're singing just soak over you. And if the Lord's doing something in your heart, just take all the time that you need. But when you're ready, we invite you to join us here for communion. We do have self-serve in the back if you want to do that. If you're there at home, wherever you are, take communion with us. Even though you're not physically here, you are a part of the body of Christ, and we are gathered together however we do it. And this is what we do in remembrance of him. So I invite you all to move about and take communion now. Remember, when communion is over, worship is over, um, we'll be having healing prayer up front. So I know we want to continue conversations, but as soon as you can, move towards the back so that we can give them space up here and some quiet. I really want to urge you, if you have prayer that you need, if you have something ailing you, our healing prayer team is here for you. It is not a burden. It's not like, oh, geez, I hope nobody comes so I can get out of here early. They came here early, and they prayed downstairs, and they prepared their hearts and their spirits to be able to minister to you. They want you to stay. So please stay if you need healing prayer. Please do that. And everybody else, we have coffee and donuts downstairs. I I know there's still donuts for the time being. If you get down there soon, they're probably still there. But let's move about and just celebrate what God has done. Amen? Thank you, guys.